is not that different from how scientists think and how the scientific method or methods, you know, kind of functions. A scientific worldview doesn't have to slide into scientism. Scientism says the natural world is all the rich. Whereas as a Christian, I would say uh, science are the tools we use to learn about the natural world, but the natural world is not the sum total of reality. Hello and welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts challenges to the Christian faith with hope. This is the third episode in our ECLAS series, which looks at the concrete engagements with science on the ground in various Christian contexts. The context we're looking at in this episode is churches in the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement. This is the movement known for its emphasis on the supernatural, miracles, healings, speaking in tongues. Does that make this movement less scientific or less favourable to science? Or does it make them more so? I've asked two people to join me in unpacking this question. Chris Dunn, Professor of Astrophysics at Durham University, and Simo Frastadius, Executive Director of the Institute for Pentecostal Theology. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. So in this series on science and religion, we're really looking at some of the practical impact of the faith and science debate on ordinary church-going people. And the theme for this episode is the way that science impacts people who belong to charismatic and Pentecostal churches. So, Simo, I understand that you're a Pentecostal minister. <clears throat> yes, that's right. So I'm part of the Elim Pentecostal Church and I'm one of the, one of the ordained ministers. Fantastic. So what, what kind of a church do you belong to? Yeah, so at the moment, because obviously I'm based at Regents Theological College, so I guess I'm kind of fulfilling my ministerial duty as a, as a theologian, as a, as a lecturer. But yes, we worship in, in the local Elim church here in Malvern called Beacon Elim Church. And um, yeah, I, I help out in the Sunday school. I've got three young kids and um, also preach now and again and sometimes lead sung worship. Fantastic. And Chris, what kind of a church do you go to? So I go to a local charismatic church. It's part of the New Frontiers, Regions Beyond uh, group of churches. It's a fabulous local church. I'm part of the extended leadership, especially leading Alpha courses. But I also do sort of worship in small groups, preach occasionally. I haven't got brave enough to do children's stuff yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris, what's it like being a physics or astrophysics professor in a charismatic church? How how do the other members of the church view you? So it it's one of these these things that sometimes people can find a little bit twitchy. I do a lot of science and faith talks, and in my own church, I'm a known. I'm a known quantity. A known quantity. <laughs> yeah, well, they know they know not to expect or to expect anything. <laughs> and so uh, I'm not that scary. That's the yeah. wonderful thing that I'm known and I'm loved in that context. It, when I go to other contexts and talk about science and faith, that can be a little bit interesting at times. One of the great things about the group of, of churches, the charismatic Pentecostal churches, is they sort of rediscovered that 
biblical truth. So we discovered, oh, what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, we can actually experience. You can really uh, practice it. It's still living and, and true yes. today. Yeah. But that also, that discovery that the Bible is literally true in these things can sometimes extend to, well, let's just believe everything is literally true rather than look at it through the lens of what it's trying to do, which is to teach us about God, to teach us who God is and who we are in mm. relation to God. So sometimes I can have this slight distrust from people who don't know me that, oh, so you're, you're a, a scientist, mm. and there's this sort of provisionality on that. So they don't know quite what of, to do with you. They're like, are you really a Christian or are you really a scientist? Right. Can you be that's really right. both? Yes, yeah. but that's such an interesting question, and that's, that's a really interesting discussion. But a lot of the time, I just... Because I describe myself as a rocket scientist who does black holes, people normally just go, wow, I've always wanted to know about black holes. <laughs> you're a rocket scientist. You're, you're the I'm person everybody scientist. talks about whenever they I say know. it's not rocket science. There we go. Yeah. I once had someone say that to me, and then they suddenly realized I was a rocket scientist. It was like, if it was rocket science, you could still do it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Very interesting. And now, Seymour, I... I understand your Regents Theological College has recently taken part in the Science for Seminaries project. Can you tell us a little bit about its role there? Yeah, absolutely. So we're just coming to the end of our two-year project. It's called The Fuller Gospel, Pentecostalism and Science. So for those of you familiar... The Full Gospel. The Fuller Gospel. So as, as many know... Oh, the Four Gospels. The, the Fuller Gospel. Fuller. Fuller. Oh, the Fuller Gospel. The Fuller Gospels. As, yeah, as, as you rightly picked up, Barney, it's, it's a play on words on the idea of the full gospel, which, of course, Pentecostals have always emphasized. So if you don't know the full gospel in its fourfold form, refers to Jesus as Savior, Healer, Baptizer in the Holy Spirit, and soon coming King. And ah. if, you, if you go for the fivefold, it adds Sanctifier as well. But I guess we've kind of asked the question, well, maybe if Pentecostals engage with science and learn from that, perhaps the gospel could even be fuller, you know, than it, than it currently is. So that's kind of been our, our idea. And, and what, what that's looked like in practice, we've um, a few of our modules, particularly two core modules at undergrad level, we've kind of incorporated science-engaged theology into them. One of the topics has been on origins, one on divine healing and, and, and medical sciences, one on eschatology and, and the environment. And wow. then also we've talked about, I suppose, Pentecostal theological method and, and the scientific method. And then we also held a, held a conference in October in, in 22 on science wonders and miracles, a good Pentecostal charismatic topic where we invited some scientists and, and theologians to, to reflect on this theme. Science wonders and miracles. Wow. So tell me about your experience of running this. How did people receive some of these Science for Seminaries initiatives right at the beginning what was people's reaction to them yeah i think i would say on the whole it's been it's been positive i mean i think as, as mentioned by by chris i think for a lot of our students at least and i think it's maybe reflected in in the churches um maybe there's a there's, for some there's an element of maybe distrust they might see science mm. as a as a threat and i think for me that's often exacerbated by many of them as chris has said still read the bible very literally so when it comes to origins, genesis, many would still be very skeptical of, of evolutionary theory. 
And I find that very interesting because when I've been engaging with other members who are involved in the, in the Science for Seminaries, and many of them are Anglicans, for, for many of my Anglican brothers and sisters, this is really a no issue. <laughs> you yeah. know, they kind of look back and say, this was a, many years ago, there were some people who were still young earth creationists. And say, I say, well, guys, <laughs> in my circles, there's still many people like that. And, and a lot of them are, are lovely Christians. A lot of them are highly intelligent uh, as well. Some of them even have scientific backgrounds. So I think that's one thing. So maybe there's sometimes an element of skepticism towards mainstream science because of that tension. I think the other thing that you find also is that, I guess, with, with some scientists who are essentially kind of atheistic scientists who kind of are metaphysical naturalists and they advocate their particular worldview under the guise of this is just science, I think some have, you know, bought into or or are familiar with that rhetoric and I guess therefore they would see that as a, as a slight threat. So I think there's a kind of, a, one of the things is just to kind of help people see science in, in, in broader terms. But I think the other thing that sometimes people just see it's irrelevant to them. You know, I think a lot of Pentecostals, you know, they're, they're more interested mm. in, you know, getting the amp to work and the electric guitar on, but they're less interested in how the, how it actually works, what the, what, what's the kind of electricity behind it. You know, they're just... Why, why care? Yeah. Why care about some of those questions? So there's that kind of, yeah, it's, it's good. We, we like it, but we're not really interested that much in it. So I guess for those people, it's, it's really the challenge is, well, actually, maybe there's some things that you know, we can really learn from science and, and also pointing out to them actually how much science does already influence their worldview, their understanding of the world, how they live their everyday lives. Yeah, I mean, that's what that, that seems to be evident in the name of ECLAS, right? Equipping Christian leadership in an age of science that presupposes we are actually living in an age of science, whether we like it or not. And so we have to grapple with what our age is sort of doing to us and how our age is shaping the way we think and the way we interact. Now, both of you have mentioned a certain suspicion or a certain distrust of science. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit more about where you think this suspicion or distrust comes from? What's its source, especially in charismatic and Pentecostal churches? Because as you mentioned, Seymour, it's not, there's not a similar suspicion or distrust in Anglican churches. So I think it comes from this realization that some parts of the bible are really meant to be taken literally <laughs> that they can yeah, okay. and so once once you really embrace that that actually it's talking about a relationship with a living jesus yeah that it's a, a relationship we can experience it's not just an intellectual belief system that the Bible talks of Jesus being with us and of that power that raised Jesus from the dead being in us. Although as humans, we are really rubbish with power. So um, it's a really different way to approach the Bible <laughs> to say, oh, this is true. This is something we can experience. Mm. Yeah. But the Bible isn't just one set of, of books. It's not just eyewitness account it's not just history and especially in the old testament there's a lot of much more cultural background difficult to understand yeah um, types of literature but if the bible was all just one type of literature then it couldn't appeal and connect with so many different types of people that 
No. So people respond much more to uh, sort of stories or allegory or poetry. Different people respond to different types of literature. So by hitting all the different types of literature, then it gets to appeal and connect to so many different types of people because Jesus is not just interested in Western, liberal, educated white males. I mean, he's out for the world. Yeah, that's uh, a very important point. And and it, it could be said that some of the sort of Western approaches to science could be to blame for this, for the need to rediscover parts of the New Testament as actually literal, you know, because I guess what what I hear you saying is that there was a sense for a long time that I, that things like miracles and speaking in tongues and prophecy and even casting out of demons and that kind of thing are sort of a bit outdated for this day and age. And they're just strange ways of describing perhaps medical or physical phenomena that can be explained scientifically either way. And then if people suddenly discover that, no, those things aren't outdated, those things still happen today, there's a tendency to lift the whole of the rest of the Bible up to that same level. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, Yeah, I think, I think yeah. that's what I would be saying. But Simo, you're you're, yeah, the, yeah. you're the theologian. Sure. Yes. Yeah. No. I think I think Chris has rightly identified biblical hermeneutics as one. I think the very experiential nature of of Pentecostalism, and there's that kind of um, you know the early Pentecostals like to talk about this is that. So they would read the scriptures and then they would seek to experience that. And what they experienced, they would read back into the scriptures. And there was this kind of a, a mutual interplay between their own experiences and what they were reading in the scriptures. Beautiful circularity, yeah. yeah. So I think so. I think very much it was, it was quite a literal kind of, and I say naive, not in a pejorative sense, but naive reading of the scripture, but also naive reading of their own experiences, you know, yeah. in light of the, the scriptures. But also I think there's, there's historical roots Particularly if, you, if, you know, I come from the Elian Pentecostal Church, you know, we kind of trace our origins. We, we were founded in, in 1915, but I guess the Pentecostal movement in the UK started 1907, you know, from the north near Chris in kind of Sunderland with, with Alexander Body. And of course, around that time, there was the wider Christian debate, you know, so-called theological liberalism, Christian fundamentalism. And in many ways, classical Pentecostalism was also birthed in that environment and in, and in that context. And I oh, think, so it was forced to take sides in a particular conflict that was going on at the time. I, I, I think so, and I think in many ways, I think what they, what, what Pentecostals, you know, from, from my work, what, what they would share with the so-called theological liberals is the focus on experience, you know, and their kind of yeah. ex- experientialism. But then what they share with the with the Christian fundamentalists would be a kind of a literal reading of the Bible, and you know, and taking it literally to be true. And therefore, they would be very skeptical of any kind of movements when it comes to what they would see as questioning the authority of the Bible or, as Chris has mentioned, about the miraculous or, you know, demon possession or theories of the atonement or denying the resurrection or the virgin birth. So therefore, I think they kind of took sides a bit on that leaning towards the the Christian fundamentalists as well. And of course, the big debate at that time was around evolution as well. So I think that's kind of fed into it. And that, I think, has led to a a general distrust of the wider scientific enterprise. So it seems most of this comes down to the question about how to interpret Genesis, right? It seems that that it's the, the perceived conflict between the Genesis account of 
the beginning of human life and the beginning of the world and the perceived scientific account that has led to a feeling that charismatic Christians have been forced to sort of take sides and they've been forced to say, well, okay, we're, we're Christians, so we believe what the Bible says, we believe what the Bible says, literally. And so that means we have to reject what science says because there's there's an apparent conflict. Is that sort of how how things developed in that way? Yeah, I think I think that's that, that's that's certainly I think one one major part of it. But I think the other part I think is is, is Chris was noting is the is the demythologizing of the Bible. Yeah. Uh, I think and I think that has been really really influential. So I think often maybe Pentecostals charismatics would see that so much of the scientific enterprise is kind of driven by naturalism and reductionism, you know, explaining away what they would see as as, as genuine events and, and realities that they themselves experience. And I think you particularly see this, you know, in the global south, you know, there would be, you know, of course, you know, of course, of course, these things are real. In fact, there was a famous uh, Pentecostal called uh, David Duplessis, and he would sometimes joke, you know, in World Council of Churches, you know, yes, yes, we are, as Pentecostals, we're also into demythologizing the Bible. We, we read it uh-huh. and, then, and then we live it out and we say, well, that's demytho- demythologized. It's not there's a myth nothing, anymore. There's, nothing, <laughs> there's, there's no myth in it anymore, but it's a very that's different great. kind of approach. That's great. So, so with can this I, sort of, can I yeah, go wind, for it, Chris. wind that back? So you were, you were talking about the, uh, the way people interpret the first couple of chapters of Genesis, but Augustine in 400 AD, I mean, way before anyone had any need to be defensive with modern science, he wrote a book on the literal meaning of Genesis and said, well, it's really hard to understand what this is actually talking about. And in in matters so, so far beyond our grasp, we should not take our stand so firmly on one side that if evidence comes up that justly undermines our position, that we fall with it. And I just thought that was amazing that it's not just, uh, say, uh, liberal or Anglican or uh, very intellectual current church viewpoint. Here we are in 400 AD with one of the fathers of uh, theology, Augustine, going, well, you know, what kind of days these are is... It's very difficult, if not impossible, to understand, was his take on the text of Genesis in 400 AD. So really what we've got our knickers in a twist about is completely, he would find it bemusing. I mean, it's very interesting, especially combined with what Seymour said about the modern tendency, the modern liberal tendency to demythologize aspects of the New Testament. Mm. Because again, if you look at Augustine, he's quite happy to have some ambiguity in the way we read Genesis, but at the same time, he he would be completely committed to all of the supernatural elements going on in the New Testament. Mm. So he's, yeah. he sort of shows that it's not a kind of slippery slope. If you let go of one, then you have to let go of the other, that there's reasons to hold on to one without those same reasons, meaning that you have to hold on to the other. Yeah, and, and in fact, biblically, this 
what you believe about Genesis in, in some of the more fundamentalist Christian circles becomes a test of whether or not you're a real Christian. But biblically, the test of whether or not you are a real Christian is uh, if, if, you, if you say with your lips, Jesus is Lord and believe that he was raised from the dead, then that's it. That so it does require some, some sort of commitment to a supernatural event. There's no question there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And this is, this is, I think, the real point that uh, actually a scientific worldview doesn't have to slide into scientism. Scientism says the natural world is all the rich. Mm. And that's a big assumption. Whereas as a Christian, I would say uh, science are the tools we learn to, we, we use to learn about the natural world. But the natural world is not the sum total of reality, that there is also a spiritual reality. Did you want to add anything to that, Seymour? No, I, I think that's, that's absolutely right, I think. And I think one of the helpful things that with many of our students, I mean, so I, I teach this kind of every year with our kind of first year students. Obviously, we've got a Torah module that looks at it as part of the Eclis Science for Seminaries project. And, mm. and I think... Just one helpful thing is just to help students to think through, you know, biblical hermeneutics. How should we interpret Genesis 1 to 3 or 1 to 11? It's kind of original genre and to kind of allow the Bible to be the Bible rather than assume that this is <laughs> this is what it should be in light of our kind of our modern or late modern assumptions. But also yeah. just to show just to show them that th there's different ways that Christians have understood this throughout the, the history of the church, but also today. And just to give them different options and, and, and different paradigms of reading. And I think that often just, I think, takes the, well, I think it alleviates some of the fears that people may have. And I think, as you yeah. noted, Barney, and just the notion, and as Chris has just, just said as well, is that, okay, you know, even if, if, you, if you read this, as I think it's meant to be read more kind of theologically, metaphorically, that doesn't mean that therefore you don't believe in the in the in the physical resurrection yeah. of Jesus or or the, or the miraculous miracles of Jesus in the gospel. So it, that that need not follow from the first. Yeah, no, absolutely. A lot of it has to do with sort of getting rid of the fear, removing the the fear factor, and it's one of the themes of this podcast. You know, confronting challenges to the Christian faith, which is that we we don't need to be afraid to question anything, because the truth, if it is true, will withstand any questioning, will withstand any absolutely. doubting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I actually find it when Christians are, are kind of slightly wary or, or threatened by science, I, I have to go, no, no, how, how can <laughs> anything that we discover about the natural world threaten, <laughs> threaten the creator of it all? This is just such a, an unimaginable concept. It might rattle some of our understanding of what we read but you know sometimes I'm not always right this comes as a huge shock to me actually <laughs> sometimes I'm not that's excellent so so Chris what's been your experience of guiding people through that what sort of what has helped people to engage more deeply with science and to no longer see science as a threat to their faith I think having having that conversation. So in, in places where I've been able to do that and actually talk about it, I, the one I especially remember is, is our youth group at church. I, I did the teenagers. 
Oh, tricky group. Oh, much easier than eight-year-olds. Eight-year-olds are really scary. The smaller <laughs> they get, the scarier they are. But teenagers, they're, they're, they're definitely um, more entertaining. <laughs> so so I, did, I did this with the teenagers and talked about, oh, okay, well, how do we interpret Genesis? How do we think about science? And especially I talked about this kind of God of the gaps kind of idea where people go, well, you know, we don't we don't know how the universe began, the Big Bang, how that actually happened, how you got something from absolutely nothing. The Big Bang isn't an explosion of matter and energy into pre-existing space and time because space and time is something. Space and time yeah. is part of the created world. And so you have literally nothing and then you have something. And so people go, well, you know, surely that that must be God. And things like, well, we don't actually know uh, how to get some sort of life out of chemistry. How, how do you do that? Well, you don't know that. And how do you explain consciousness? And we know it. Yeah, so we, yeah. all of these things we, we don't understand. But if we relegate God to the things we don't understand, then as we understand more, the space for God gets smaller. I just think the more we understand, the bigger the view it gives us of who God is. The, yeah. the, the more we know about this vast and beautiful universe, well, the bigger the God who made it all. And so I think it's all it's all God, not, not just the little bits where we or even huge bits where we don't really know what we're doing. But it's so it's like God is in and behind all of the things that we do know from science as well as the yes. anything that we don't currently know. And anything yeah. that science doesn't yet know doesn't mean that science won't know it in the future anyway. That's sort of what you're yes. saying. Yes. Yeah. And so if you put if you put God there and science grows, then science does look like a threat to, to God. It look, makes it God look smaller. Whereas I don't put God in the bits that I don't understand, even though they're quite large. I put God everywhere so that the more you know about the natural world, the bigger the God who made the natural world. Yeah, fantastic. So Seymour, what was your experience of running these Science for Seminaries courses and conferences? How did students respond to them? And did, did, did you find that it helped students to change their minds? Yeah, I think... I think so. I think, by and large, majority of our students have received various initiatives, whether it's been modules, conference, other events that we put on with guest speakers. The reception has been very positive. I, th I think what it does do, I think it's, particularly having some Christian scientists come and talk about their science and their faith, I think it just kind of alleviates it. It helps them think, oh, okay, I, maybe I don't have to be afraid of some of this stuff. Sometimes just explaining some things to them just gets them to think, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, science does make sense and it's not as hard as maybe I thought it was. I mean, I think a few things that I found really helpful just to help get some of our you know, students who majority come from Pentecostal charismatic backgrounds on this. It's just kind of with definitions, <laughs> defining what is science and what is it not. You know, and, and as part of that, the limits of science, there are some things that science is really good at. You know, we talk about sciences, you know, more broadly, you know, it's mm. focused on the natural world, how things function. But there are many things, you know, on the things like the why questions or, or what's beyond nature that science is not so good at 
It's, it's not part of its purview. So I think that often yeah. kind of helps. It helps students. So, okay, so science is, is doing these things whereas theology focuses on, on related questions, but also on different questions at, at times. So I think that helps. But also, I think particularly with Pentecostals, I often also point out the similarities in thinking. You know, so actually, oh, so actually Pentecostals, are, I would say, are really p- biblical pragmatists. You know, so obviously they take the Bible seriously, but they want to experience that in their own life. There's a huge, huge focus and emphasis on experience or what I call kind of experientialism, experiencing yeah. the reality of They want of God. to see it working in the, in the world. Yeah, and yeah. they want to experience, but not just experience, but also what I would call kind of experimentalism. You know, I guess it's the neo-pragmatic philosopher Hilary Pudnan talks about the testing beliefs in the laboratory of life. And I think that's what Pentecostals charismatics really love, love doing. So actually saying that, well, actually, in many ways, the way that a lot of us think, you know, coming from this tradition is not that different from how scientists think and how the scientific method or methods, you know, kind of functions. So I think that often helps people to think, oh, OK, yeah, I can see the I can see the similarities here here as well. That's really interesting. So what would you what would you want for next steps in helping the charismatic and Pentecostal communities engage with science? What would you want to see happen next? Yeah, I think for me, a, a few things. One thing, and I guess this is really kind of maybe hopefully not stealing Chris's thunder. What, what I've really come across, uh, and obviously not just at the college context, but with a lot of Pentecostal churches, I think what the project has done for us, it's kind of opened some doors and has put me in contact with some scientists who go to Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches. And I think it would be great to try to connect more of them with each other. I think some That's of them... To build some, a network of Pentecostal scientists. I, I, I think, I think mm. a lot of them would find that helpful. I think linked to that is just to help to see Pentecostal churches and particularly leaders and pastors to kind of celebrate the scientists <laughs> in their congregations because many of them share those same fears that we've talked about, you know, today, but actually to see them as this is a, this is a Christian vocation to be a scientist as important as anything else. And I think to, to celebrate that, I think that, that would be really good. I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm, as, as a Dean of Research here, I think there's a lot of exciting research projects that could be done, you know, more kind of science engaged theology. Interesting research projects to do with to do with science-engaged Pentecostal theology in particular? Uh, ab- absolutely. I think I think there's there's many things that you, you, you could do, you know, on yeah, that. Okay. Very, very interesting. What about what about you, Chris? What what would you want to see next for helping charismatic and Pentecostal churches and Christians engage more deeply with science? Well, I think in in some sense, like like you said at the start, Simo, some for some people it's it's just not really a, a big question. It's not really relevant as long as we can take away that sort of wariness, so that they can whatever new science discovery is on the news, they could go, oh, that's that's really cool. That shows us more about how cool God is, and move on with their life. I I think that's actually what the majority of people science although we live in a in a very science dominated world actually for many people it's not a live issue and as long as we can take away that kind of slight fear and wariness barrier then that's what i would really like to see but how we do that is part of it i think comes down to Christian leaders 
not being threatened by science mm. and not and not using not using genesis as a as sort of a, a marker, uh, a sort of tribal marker. The, a sort of litmus the, test, are you a real Christian yeah, or not? Yeah. yeah, because it's not about that. So I think, I think those are the things that I would like to see. How we get there is another question, but those are the things I would like to see. And I think just to follow from Chris, I think theologically one of the challenges, certainly with classical Pentecostals, I'm not quite sure what it's like with, with New Frontiers, but although we obviously take Genesis 1, 2, and 3 very seriously, I think generally Pentecostals don't have a developed doctrine of creation. Mm. So I think that that's I think very that, interesting. So point. I think so I think that's quite interesting that, and I guess maybe because we're often pragmatists and uh, the focus has mm. been on 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 salvation and as we would say getting people saved, whatever we mean by that. You know, the focus is really on you're a sinner, you you need saving, and that's kind of the truncated yeah. kind of gospel. That, that's the whole gospel, yeah. But it doesn't really start mm. from the doctrine of creation. And I think because mm. we don't have a sufficiently developed doctrine of creation. So, so, for example, have a look at Pentecostal statements of faith. You'll very mm. seldom find anything or very little mention about creation, which is interesting. Mm. So it's very interesting that the Pentecostal God is not, is not sort of the God who actually created everything that is. But if you introduce the doctrine of creation, what you're saying is that makes the same God who came in Jesus also the God who created the world the way it works. That's that's absolutely right. So I often, you know, when I, when I teach this stuff with our students, I often start, you know, we start by a kind of a biblical reflection on reflecting on the spirit at, in Genesis 1, the spirit of God mm. hovering over the face of the waters. Mm. And then going to Acts 2 about the spirit of Pentecost and saying, well, actually the spirit of Pentecost is also the spirit of creation. But we've not always made that link in our minds or in our spirituality or in our practice. Yeah. I love love the John 1 introduction as well, which sort of does this meta overview of (laughs) the entire Old Testament. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. So a lot of this has to be sort of leadership coming from the pulpit in like putting scientists who are Christians in front of everybody so they can see these people really exist and and it's possible to be both a real scientist and a real Christian, but also a sort of more robust teaching on the role that creation has in the Christian faith, which means that our God is not just a God who saves, he's also a God who is the source of all reality, including... Everything. Yeah, the source yes. of everything, including everything that science investigates. Absolutely. And I think that also has implications for how we understand eschatology. So, of course, Pentecostals, Charismatics have always had a big emphasis on, you know, as we said, to talk about the coming king. But again, if you don't have a developed doctrine of creation, then you your kind of doctrine of, of the end and new creation may also be somewhat um, limited. Yeah, Okay. So we've got some we've got some good um, ideas about how to take things forward. At any rate, any other thoughts to close off with? You said your piece. Yeah, I mean, just <laughs> just to say that I think, well, Chris is a living example. There are many Christian scientists in Pentecostal charismatic churches, and I think increasing ours <laughs> exactly. And I think increasingly also in a lot of the black majority churches, because I think. If you look at many classical Pentecostals, traditionally would have been more working class, but, but particularly, you know, people from kind of West African backgrounds, you know, they often take education very seriously. And mm. and, and, and a lot, lot of them would be would be highly trained and educated folk. And, and, and they are the people that we find in our churches. 
So I think there are many, many scientists out there. Somehow we could just connect them and appreciate them more. That would be fantastic. Raise awareness. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Seymour and Chris, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. It's been really fascinating and I've learned a lot from talking to you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Barney. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast produced in collaboration with The Tablet. If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.